Thanks, Luke. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. While you're turning there, I just want to point out that uh, everyone on this stage is volunteering their time to be up here and to lead us in worship. And I'm really grateful for Luke and the praise team um, to be up here to take time. And we have another praise team that will be up here in September, a different one. And, uh, and they, too, are volunteering their time as well. So we're grateful um, for, for your care for us. Thank you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. I, uh, I can remember times in my life of incredible uh, grief and sorrow. Just times that were really, really difficult. Times where I was at the end of my rope. And unfortunately, it was pretty much during those times where I, I, found, I found myself, my prayer life, to be the absolute richest that it ever was. And, and, and I, say, um, I say, unfortunately, because... The rest of the times, it, it didn't seem as such as it was during those difficult times. Times where I had, I had nowhere else to turn, maybe, or God had, had grabbed my attention through suffering and where I was, I was focused on Him. Or maybe it was just that my mind was constantly on this one particular thing that I was reminded to pray for it over and over and over and over again. Our first son, Grayson, was born six weeks early, and he went into the NICU for three weeks, and the doctors discovered that after he was born that Andrea has a, a blood disorder, a blood condition that causes her blood to clot whenever she's pregnant. And so um, when she's pregnant, she has to take blood thinners every day for, um, this is not an announcement, by the way, I realize how this sounds, I'm saying this is not an announcement, um, but uh, she has to take blood thinners every day um, for the t entire duration of the pregnancy and then there a little bit afterwards. And so needless to say, while she was pregnant with Andrew uh, two years later and then two years after that with Natalie, we prayed together every night for the safety of the baby and for the safety of Andrea as she's taking this medication. And I look at those times with some lament because I realize that there are other times in my life when I haven't been as driven to prayer. That I haven't, I haven't just been I haven't gravitated toward prayer where life maybe seems to be going pretty good. That my attention may be on several different things all at once. Yes. Or maybe my heart just simply isn't in it. And when I sit down to pray, I think, this is boring, and I just fall asleep. Whatever the case, I'm sure that as you look over the course of your life, you can see times in your life of rich devotion and deep time in prayer. But then there are others where you think to yourself, when was the last time that I actually prayed? When was the last time I prayed and, and, and really meant it? If I were to go around this room right now and were to ask what spiritual discipline is the most difficult in your life to cultivate, the majority of people in this room would probably say prayer. And, and the reason I know is because I've done it in several places and, I, and I've said that in several places in several churches and everybody goes, yep, 
Me too. This morning, Jesus is going to turn his attention to our prayer life. And the central thought that we're going to be pursuing this morning, and the central question that I want us to answer, is, is your heart in your prayers? Is your heart in your prayers? And what season of life is this that you are in? Is this a time for you where your time with the Lord in prayer is deep and rich and full and you long for it every day? Or is it difficult, like trudging through quicksand? Or maybe some are even struggling to develop a prayer life at all. Is that you? Now with those questions in mind, let's look at our text this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, remember where we are in the book of Matthew. We're in the middle of what's traditionally referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew's chapters 5 to 7. We're in Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus is questioning our motivations for righteousness. That's almost the entire content of chapter 6. is questioning our motivations for righteousness. Why do we do the things that we do? Why is it, like we saw last week, why is it that we give to the needy? What is in our heart that pulls us towards giving to the needy? In chapter 5, the previous chapter, Jesus explains to us that citizens of the kingdom of heaven are supposed to live differently. There's something that's supposed to cause you to want to live differently. And he lays out what heavenly righteousness looks like for us in chapter 5. But now that we get into chapter 6, he's asking, what motivates your heart to live that way? This week, we turn our attention to prayer. In, In fact, over the next several weeks, we're going to be taking a deeper look at prayer in general. Prayer this week is really questioning the motivation for prayer, whereas next week and on we'll be looking at Jesus talking about how to pray and the mechanics of prayer. But now we're looking at our heart's motivations in prayer. So maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I can't even remember the last time I prayed or the last time I talked to the Lord and Maybe when I do pray, I'm not really sure I know what I'm doing when I do this. My prayer for you is that over the next few weeks, you'll find a compelling case for prayer. That you'll find comfort and desire in prayer. That you'll be driven to prayer. And that we as a church will be driven to our knees in prayer. Our text this morning is really broken down into two parts. We've got verses 5 to 6 and then verses 7 and 8. Jesus is going to call our attention to hypocritical prayer first in verses 5 and 6. And then he calls our attention to praying like a pagan in verses 7 and 8. And his warning is don't be like either one of them, the hypocrites or the pagans, in the ways that you pray. And so this morning I'm going to ask two questions. That's going to be the outline of the sermon this morning. It's really just two questions. 
And I'm hopeful that as we think about um, these two questions, we'll help analyze our own heart. What, what is my heart's motivation in prayer? And the first question is this. Is secret prayer a joy for you? Is secret prayer a joy for you? Now, secret as opposed to public prayer. Is secret prayer, private prayer, a joy for you? Look at verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now Jesus warns us against being like the hypocrites. And he starts by identifying this kind of people, these hypocritical people. He says, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Uh, the Jewish people are traditionally known as a praying people. Even if you were to stumble across an Orthodox Jew, maybe even a conservative Orthodox Jew today, you would find that they're a praying people. Even to this day, they pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Now they're repetitive and they're canned, but they're still given towards prayer. They gravitate towards prayer. Now on top of these regular prayers, this morning, afternoon, and evening, on top of all of that, they would offer um, spontaneous prayers. A man might be called on in a synagogue to pray spontaneously, much like what we would see here in our church. Would you open the service for us? Would you close the service for us? Or would you pray during these particular times? In addition to that, there would be public times of fasting where, or, or, or even just daily when the horn would blow as the, the daily temple sacrifice, when the horn would blow, that a man in earshot of that horn would stop what he was doing and turn and face the temple and offer up a prayer. And so my point is that you can see in the cultural context around Jesus, it gives you an idea of what the Jews that are listening to him preach would have sensed or would have heard whenever he says this about public prayer. Public, times of public prayer were frequent in Jesus' day, probably more so than they are now. But the issue at hand is not public prayer. He, hear that. For just a moment. The issue at hand is not public prayer. We've, we've already seen the same thing in the previous message last week where Jesus condemns the giving of the hypocrites. The way that they give. They give for the purpose of being seen by others. And now here we're looking at praying for the purpose of being seen by others. That's the issue. It's a kind of pride that sits in the human heart that really, more than anything, desires the praise and affection of men, even when he's supposed to be communing with God. It's desiring to appear as though he's pious. To appear as though he's got it all together. To appear as though he's super spiritual. You know. To put it in our cultural context, when he's called on to pray, he's got his two best friends with him, the thesaurus, so people know that he's smart, because God, we know, speaks in ACT language, right? And then he's got his old English dictionary, because God speaks in King James as well. 
So we got to have the these and the thys and the thous all in its right place. He finds ways to weave his favorite Bible verses into his prayers so that his hearers know that not only does he read the Bible, he's got it memorized. He counts the number of times that he hears from the congregation. Mmm. And amen. And yes, Lord. And he thinks to himself, Oh, I've got some amens and some mmms and some yes, Lords. People are in agreement with what I'm saying. This prayer is effective. It's moving their hearts. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with reciting Scripture in your prayers. In fact, I think it's a very good habit for us to recite Scripture in our prayer to remind us and to remind our audience of the promises of God as He has laid them out in Scripture as we pray. I think that's, that's a very good thing. But it's an entirely different thing to rattle off verses that you've memorized just to impress an audience that's listening while you're praying. Wow, he can rattle off 13 verses off the top of his head. I'm not sure if I can do that. He must be really super spiritual. His point is that in the event that we set our heart to seek the praise of mankind, then that's the only thing that will satisfy us. That's it. That's it. And, and so the reward of your praying is the ums and the amens and the praise the lords and the preach brothers that you get from the congregation. Those are your rewards. You have your reward. Now the implication of that, if you take it to the next step, is what? That God tunes you out. That's the implication of what he's saying. So then, Jesus has a command for us to test our motivations. And he says this in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, the room that Jesus is referring to would have probably been uh, in the inner room, an inner room in the house. And unlike our houses where we've got doors, every room has a door, and every door probably has some sort of a lock on it. Um, some, the lock is reversed to keep your kids in, right? I mean, we, we all know that. I'm just kidding. Uh, but where our rooms have the lockable doors, that's not the case in first century Palestine. You would, have, you, would, you would have had probably a front door with a lock on it and probably one room inside that had a door with a lock on it where you would keep things safe. You would keep your most important belongings in there. This is not an area of frequent traffic. This is where you might keep your money or things that are really valuable for the family. It's a sort of a secretive room that Jesus is talking about that would have been familiar to them. So he's talking about going in there. He's not talking about a war room. Let me just say that right now. He's not talking about a war room. Jesus didn't have a place to even lay his head, and he was one of the most prayingest persons that's ever walked the face of this earth. It's not required to have a war room to pray. Okay, That's not what he's talking about here. He's giving the opposite of what the hypocrites are, are doing as a way of communicating the kind of heartfelt attitude that should become you in prayer. 
It's the kind of attitude that he's pointing to. Your heart should be in such a place, in such a position, that you would seek the Lord in prayer, even if it's in the most remotest of places where you have no chance of being seen or heard by anyone else. That's your desire. Now, the further irony that's, that's present in this text between these two verses is that the hypocrites go into public so that they are seen by everyone except God. The righteous go into the closet where they are seen by no one except God. That's the, the, the difference here in the text. Do you see what he's saying? Prayer is communion between you and your heavenly Father. Now, now Jesus hasn't taught us how to pray yet. We'll start that next week. All He's doing right now, at this very moment, is checking our motivations in prayer. What motivates our hearts towards praying. And, and really telling us how not to pray. So you can see the kind of heartfelt attitude that Jesus is driving at here. What, he, what He's really trying to get from us or help us to understand. Prayer is joyful, sweet communion between you and your Heavenly Father. But the question is, is secret prayer a joy for you? Do you find it to be a joyful time? I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jesus is analyzing our motivations in prayer, and he says, don't pray in front of others so that they'll think you're really super spiritual, my interpretation, but instead go into your room. It's possible that you might think to yourself, well, I don't fall into that category. I am virtually never called on to pray in public. And you might think, well, I shy away from praying in public. I try not to have people hear me pray. But think less about the command in verse 5, the, the behavior that's pointed at in verse 5, and think more about the command that's given to us in verse 6. Notice the first assumption that he has here, much like what we saw last week with giving, and in a few weeks we'll see on fasting. The assumption is that you are going to pray. When you pray. But as I've, already, as I've already made mention, our experience most frequently will tell us that our most difficult behavior, spiritual discipline to cultivate, is a dependence on the Lord in prayer. If you were to give an account of your prayer life before everyone in this room, being completely honest, would you say that private prayer time for you is a joy? Is it so much of a joy that you prioritize it in your day? That you make it a priority? I'm going to get up early or I'm going to, I'm going to stay up late or I'm going to, several times throughout the day, I'm going to make a point to come to the Lord in prayer. Is it so much of a joy that you look forward to it every day? That you think about time with the Lord in prayer and it, it is it's a real joy to you. You look forward to it. Now, prayer isn't only in the secrecy of our rooms. We have minds that no one can read 
but God alone. Thank the Lord. Secret prayer is afforded to us at any moment throughout the day. Is secret prayer such a joy for you that you find your mind gravitating that way in your regular everyday life? As you do some really hard things in your job, as you have conversations with your friends, when you notice that someone or something is stealing your joy or is driving you into a depression, do you find yourself given to prayer? When things perhaps are going your way, or you have unexpected wins, victories that are coming your way, is your mind turning toward the Lord in thanksgiving for the many blessings that He's giving to you? Jesus' command to us is to a lifestyle of private prayer and communion between you and God, but is this kind of lifestyle a joy for you? In reality, our public prayers, anytime we're called on to pray in public, it should be an overflow of what's happening in private. It should be an overflow of what's already true in our time with the Lord. The dependence that we have on the Lord in private should be communicated in our public offerings in prayer. But in this command of Jesus, there's also an appeal to you. He's drawing you in. Look at what he said. Listen to what he's saying. If you are a Christian, your Heavenly Father wants to hear from you. Think about that for just a second. The Lord of all creation wants to hear from you. And Jesus says, He will reward you. What does that mean? What does that mean? He rewards me. He rewards me for prayer. Well, I, I think what it means is that he, unlike the hypocrite who prays in public to be seen by others, your reward is to be seen by God himself. The Lord of all creation not only sees, but responds to you. Isn't that what you're seeking? What you're seeking is a response from the Lord. He sees you and he responds to you. That's your reward. Is prayer a joy for you? Second question. Do you reflect enough on your life and circumstances to know what your needs are and how God can answer them? Do you reflect enough on your life and circumstances to know what your needs are and how God can answer them? Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Uh, Jesus gives a second command here of what not to be in addition to the hypocrite. He says, don't be the Gentile. He commands specifically, do not heap up empty phrases. The word that he uses there for empty phrases is, is something like babbling. Don't, don't babble. It's probably pretty similar to the, when we use the phrase mumbo-jumbo. There's a guy over there, just he's speaking mumbo-jumbo, just saying nonsense words, things that don't really mean anything. These are 
uh, in prayer repeated phrases that have lost all effect and all real meaning. They don't communicate what they used to communicate. Maybe at one time they did, but they don't anymore. As an example, every meal that we pray for always gets asked to be used for the nourishment of our bodies, doesn't it? Always, every time, even the stuffed crust pizza. <laughs> Lord, take away the calories. But then you get on the scale the next morning and you realize, well, that prayer was not answered. It wasn't celery. It was DiGiorno. Okay. Um, I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> so you might think of phrases that we typically use on a regular basis. And, and, and a lot of times we use the names of God in this kind of capacity. To our shame, God, our Father, Lord God, Father, Father God. And we continue to call on Him over and over and over and over and over and over again in prayer. Imagine sitting across the table from your friend and you're talking to him. And you say to him, Scott, thank you, friend, Scott, for traveling, friend, Scott, all this way, Scott. Just so that you could be with me, dear friend, Scott. Now, certainly in our prayer time communication, it's more than simply a casual conversation with a friend. It is more than that. Prayer is more than that. It's, you're, you're, there's awe and reverence there. You're talking to the God of the universe. There is respect and reverence that might not be present necessarily in a kind of conversation with a friend. So there is certainly going to be some difference there when we pray as opposed to when we simply talk. But at the same time, we often use the name of God like we use the word um. It's just a fill-in word, not because we're trying to increase the reverence or awe of the prayer, but simply because we don't know what we're going to say. And so we use the name of, of God as a filler for that kind of thing. Now, that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that we actually think that, God, that the name of God and calling on the name of God routinely or using these repeated phrases that we're used to using will somehow get God's attention more than simply asking Him or than simply thinking what we're going to say and saying it. That we need to invoke Him over and over and over again and so we use His name repeatedly. That's the worst case scenario. Jesus is quick to call us pagans. He says, for they think they will be heard for their many words. This is how the Gentiles pray. This is how the pagans pray. Don't be like that. You may recall a scene in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah and the prophets of Baal are gathered together on Mount Carmel. And there, uh, there's a, a, really it's a contest that's put before them. Uh, of which God that they call on will consume the altar that the bull is, is laying on top of. And it says this about the prophets of Baal. He says, they took the bull, this is the prophets, they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, I love this, 
Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. That's comedy right there in the Bible. It's hilarious. And so they did. <laughs> they, they cried in verse 28. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And then later it says, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. They're going on and on. They're trying to get Baal to answer them and consume the sacrifice that's in front of them. And there is no answer. Now, Jesus is saying here that when we go on repeating these meaningless phrases that we've heard people use or maybe sound really powerful, and we use these meaningless phrases, we sound like the prophets of Baal crying out to our God as if we could invoke Him somehow, thinking that somehow God will be motivated to action because of the many words that we use. How flowery they are. I'm sure that most of us in this room are probably not thinking that we're worshiping Baal or we sound like the prophets of Baal whenever we pray like that. I, I'm sure that we're not thinking that. But the reality is that God is much different than most of us are imagining. Than probably all of us are imagining. We aren't worshiping a God that needs to be awoken from sleep. He doesn't need to be persuaded to care about our concerns. He doesn't need to be told new information that he didn't know before. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Really? She's got cancer. Didn't know. We're not, we're not giving him information that he was unaware of. That's not what we're doing in prayer. He doesn't need to be pestered in order to listen to us. And sometimes this is the notion that we have when we come to the Lord in prayer. We think we, because all we're surrounded by is humans and all we interact with on a regular basis are humans, we tend to take the characteristics of humans and transfer them over to God. And so all of the parents in this room will know what it's like to be pestered until you answer by your kid. You'll know what that's like. Can I get an amen from the parents in the room? Right? You know what that's like. Mommy. Mama. Mommy. Mom. 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 What? I forgot. Now we carry that into our prayer life. And we have this pressing need. And we've tried every thing we could possibly imagine and so we've got nothing left to turn to and so we turn to the Lord in prayer another sermon for another day but that's what we do right that's that's our typical habit and we come to the Lord and we think well okay well if I'm going to get him to listen to me then I've got to pester him I'm going to have to just kind of keep knocking on his door until I finally wear him out and he'll have to answer us it, it's refreshing to hear what Jesus says in verse 8 do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Stop praying like a pagan. He is your heavenly Father. He cares for you. He loves you. He knows your needs long before you ever knew them. 
It's easy to conceptually understand this in my head, I think, but it's much harder to move this to my heart that in God I have an ally. It's a hard thing to know. It's an easy thing to think. It's a hard thing to know that in God I have an ally. I have a friend. I don't have a grumpy old man that normally tells me to get off his lawn, but if I knock on the door long enough, then he'll finally put on his bathrobe and his slippers and come to the peephole, if nothing else, than to get me to stop it and go away. That's not what I have in God. That's not the picture that Jesus paints for us. Instead, we have a loving and attentive Father that cares about the state of our heart and that cares about the things that weigh us down, the things that depress us, the things that make us excited, the things that concern us and give us anxiety. So much so that He knows our needs before we ever do. In God, we don't have an old codger that wants to be left alone and would give anything for you to go away. We have a loving, omniscient, all-powerful, all-sufficient Father that knows our needs before we even ask. Sometimes we think about God this way, that we're pestering Him, or that He doesn't want to hear from us. And that's especially true when it comes to our sins. I think, man, I'm ashamed to even confess that. That I did that or that I thought that. I'm ashamed to even voice it out loud. Even for God to hear or admit that that's what I'm struggling with. And surely by now, I've struggled with this for so long, surely by now God is tired of hearing that I've committed this sin again. But I think that smacks of arrogance and it spits on the face of Jesus. Do you understand that not everyone has the privilege of calling God Father? Do you understand that? Not everyone has the privilege of calling God Father. If you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, you are sons and heirs of the Father. You are welcomed at His table through the blood of Christ. Listen, there is no boldly coming before the throne of God and praying if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. There is no stumbling into the throne room and praying to Him. It doesn't work like that. The only reason that we are welcomed into His presence, the only reason we're able to call on Him anytime we want is because we have placed our trust in Jesus Christ. So to neglect prayer because we're afraid of the sins that we've committed, that we carry, is to say to Jesus, I doubt that what you did was enough. It's really to call into question Jesus Himself. I doubt that I can actually pray through you. Surely I must need you and something else. Listen, when Jesus died for your sins, how many of them were in the future? All of them. Every last one of them was in the future. So He died for every one of those repeated sins that you struggle with. 
Every single one of them, he died and paid for. He already knows what they were. He paid for them all at once. You can't sneak in sins at the checkout line that he didn't pay for. It's impossible. He paid for them all. So when you stand before God in prayer, if and only if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your sins are atoned for and you stand before God as if Jesus himself were standing there. Because we see that in Scripture, that in him we have an advocate, Christ Jesus the righteous in 1 John. That's why we traditionally end our prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen. That's not magic pixie dust. That's not one of those phrases, though it can become that. It's not magic pixie dust. We just sprinkle on the end of the prayer. Well, that's how we get God to listen, is we say, in Jesus' name, amen. No, we're saying, the only way that I can pray this way, the only way that I can come to you, is by my advocate, Jesus Christ. It's by his blood that I'm standing here now. And for no other reason. But the question is, do you reflect enough on your own life and circumstances to know what your needs are and how God can answer them? Do you regularly take inventory of your life and assess your needs, assess your desires, assess your sins, and routinely submit them to God? Is this your heart's motivation in prayer? This is what Jesus is coming against. This is what he's attacking, that heart attitude in prayer. He's forbidding us to come to God in prayer with our mouth and check our brain and our heart at the door. That's what he's forbidding. You can't do that. Saying mumbo-jumbo that you don't really mean. Take some time and think about what is it you're going to pray for. Instead, our heart is engaged. Our mind is engaged. We don't merely want to be seen by others. We desperately want to be seen by God. And so we'll pray in the darkest, deepest corner of the furthest dungeon if we had to in order to be seen by God because He is the only audience that I care for. And then my mind is engaged because I don't merely want to ramble on into nothingness with these canned phrases and that are just devoid of meaning altogether. I want to think about the things that I need. And I want to give them to a God who cares for me. And lay them at His feet. I want to challenge us as a church to be a praying people. People that work hard at the spiritual discipline of prayer that gravitate towards it and that are given to it on a regular basis. And there are a couple of ways that I hope to do that. Out in the foyer, there may be a few left now. We put out uh, at the beginning of the year this Bible reading and prayer guide. And this is really very simple. There's not much to it. But it challenges you to read the Bible. Verse by verse, every verse of Scripture is in there. To read through the Bible in a year. And then it also challenges you to think about what you've just read and how it should inform your prayers. What sorts of things you should be praying. Does it remind you of sin? Does it remind you of things that you need to confess? Does it remind you of things that you need to be thankful for? 
and you need to turn to him in thanksgiving. I would recommend that you grab one of those. If there's any left out in the foyer, if there's not, on our website, uh, if you click in the top right corner, you're under resources, you'll find the Bible reading and prayer guide. You can print one off at home on your own. But I would encourage you to take advantage of it. Even if you're not starting at the beginning of Scripture, you just want to pick up somewhere in the middle, that, that's fine too. But think about those readings and how they relate. Then it will also give you some other prayers that you can pray with us as a church that we're praying for, for our body, for lost people that we know of, for people that are sick, for people. All kinds of prayers are in there that it will encourage you then afterwards on a daily basis. So here's Monday. Here's what you should pray for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And you need to know that you're not going to do this perfectly. Nobody in here is going to do it perfectly. We're going to miss days. That's fine. Come back to it. Continue time in prayer. So that's the first thing that I would encourage you to do is join with us in Bible reading and prayer on a regular basis. We'll put it out every single year because I think this is one way in which we become a praying people. Second, I want you to go home tonight, this week, and spend some time in thought. Just thinking about the things that you need to ask God for, you need to pray about. And I want you to take a piece of paper and just front and back. I want you, to, you can do this as a family. This would be a great thing to do as a family. Or even just individually if you want to do it. That's fine as well. I want you to write down on one side all of the things that you're thankful for. All of the ways in which God has provided. Big and small. List them all. Everything that he's done for you, for your family. And if you're doing this as a family, everybody gets a turn. Go around the table. So the grass and the trees, if you've got young kids, they're going to be thanked. And that's fine too. Everything, just put it down. Fill up the page. Lots of thanks. But then on the other side of the, of the paper, things that you need. Take some time to just think. What are things that we need as a family? What are things that I need as an individual? They can be big and small. Big, the salvation of an entire people group. I want to see an entire people group come to know Christ. We have many missionaries that we support. David Patrick was in here a few weeks ago talking about the area of Southeast Asia that he is. He's working amongst a people group where the gospel has not permeated. That would be a good group to start with. You don't have to know the name of them. The Lord knows the name. He'll take care of that. Pray for David and, and the people that he's ministering to. We're going to be going there next year, so pray for teams that would be equipped to go and share the gospel, and they would see fruit. They could be small, meaning not global, but just on, on your personal level, things, maybe conversations that you're going to have tomorrow at work, tough conversations. Maybe you know they're coming. Pray for that. Ask the Lord for wisdom there and how to, how to do that. Ask for specific things. The point is to reflect for a moment on the things that you really need the Lord to provide and write them down and then go to the Lord in prayer. Thank Him and ask Him. Thank Him and ask Him. Avoid the trite, canned, I know I'm supposed to say this kind of stuff. Avoid all of that and just thank Him and ask Him. And say what you mean to say. If we are motivated by true communion with God, then our prayers must be more than merely lip service. They have to engage both our heart and our mind. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you. I can look around the room and I can see all of the things that you have provided for us. Not stuff, but people. That more than anything want to live lives of holiness and righteousness. That are motivated by your word. I pray, Father, for conviction on every heart, my own included. Of all of those things that we let take precedence before coming to you in prayer. Forgive us for all the advice that we give that is not first sought out in prayer. Forgive us for the counsel that we offer that isn't first sought out in prayer. Forgive us for the things that we try to provide for ourselves that we don't just ask you for. Forgive us for having some misconceptions about our relationship with you. And in kind of a backhanded sort of way, thinking that Jesus isn't sufficient enough to cover our sins. Lord, we rejoice in the very privilege that we have of knowing you. And we are humbled to be called your friend. I cannot even fathom that. How I could be a friend of an almighty creator. Lord, warm our hearts so much that our minds are driven towards prayer every day. That we long to converse and commune with you. That all of the things that we see in our life, whether they be challenges or joys, would call our attention back to prayer. Lord, may we be a praying Make us into that. In Jesus' name.